0: I invite you to take your copy of Scripture and turn to Psalm 92, Psalm 92, and uh, as you're turning there, I want to say it's good to be back, and uh, I want to thank the elders, I want to thank you, uh, the church congregation, for uh, giving me a sabbatical this summer, and uh, it was a good time, Nikki and I were able to take a vacation together, and we're super grateful for that, Uh, I was able to spend some good time with family and uh, got a lot of good reading done. And uh, that's relaxing to me, so I enjoyed that. And um, so I'm I'm very grateful for the sabbatical. Uh, I also want to let you know as well that although I was not here on Sunday mornings through the summer, I was not skipping church, okay? Uh, I actually was able to attend. Our family was able to attend a number of churches, especially in our area, uh, and churches that we partner with. Uh, These would be churches that... Would attend like our churches by the book conference that's going to be coming up in October. And so uh, these are churches that are significant and important in terms of the gospel work that we want to see uh, take place in our area. And so hopefully we were able to be an encouragement to their pastors and encouragement to their congregations. I also want to say how much I appreciate the celebration of my 20th anniversary last Saturday night and Sunday morning. Uh, It was so thoughtful, Um, it was executed flawlessly. And um, I just want you to know that I felt very loved and appreciated. So uh, thank you very much. I am looking forward to getting back in the Word together, to getting in the Scriptures together. And so this morning we're going to be looking at Psalm 92. Psalm 92. As many of you know, our mission is to glorify God by making disciples who enjoy, live, and proclaim the gospel. And we've been in a series where we've been working through our mission statement in six-month increments and so, uh, last year, we considered the theme of the glory of God, and uh, then we considered the theme of the gospel, and then this year, we've been focusing on the theme of making disciples, and now, the latter part of the year, we're focusing on the theme of enjoying the gospel. And in line with that theme, the elders recently concluded a series in Philippians, and they did an excellent job and so grateful for uh, their preaching this summer. Well, this morning we will begin a series in the Psalms, and over the next seven weeks, Lord willing, we will walk through Psalms 92 to 98. And as we walk through these Psalms, we're going to give a special attention, again, to this theme of enjoying the gospel. So with that in mind, let's turn now to Psalm 92, and I'll read the psalm in its entirety. The title of the psalm, a psalm... A Song for the Sabbath, verse 1. It is good to give thanks to the Lord, to sing praises to Your name, O Most High, to declare Your steadfast love in the morning and Your faithfulness by night, to the music of the lute and the harp, to the melody of the lyre. For You, O Lord, have made me glad by Your work. At the works of Your hands I sing for joy. How great are Your works, O Lord! Your thoughts are very deep. The stupid man cannot know, the fool cannot understand this, that though the wicked sprout like grass and evildoers flourish, they are doomed to destruction forever. But you, O Lord, are on high forever. For behold, your enemies, O Lord, for behold, your enemies shall perish. All evildoers shall be scattered. But you have exalted my horn like that of the wild ox. You have poured over me fresh oil. My eyes have seen the downfall of my enemies. My ears have heard the doom of my evil assailants. The righteous flourish like the palm tree and grow like a cedar in Lebanon. They are planted in the house of the Lord. They flourish in the courts of our God. They still bear fruit in old age. They are ever full of sap and green to declare that the Lord is upright. He is my rock, and there is no unrighteousness in Him. Amen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer together. Let's pray. God, we are so grateful for Your Word and just for the privilege once again to turn to the Scriptures now and to consider what You have to say to us. Lord, we pray that as we consider Your Word now that we would worship You in spirit and in truth, that our minds and our hearts would be engaged And, Lord, we pray that through the power of Your Word, You would change us for Your glory. And it's through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen. Well, I've entitled our sermon this morning, Don't Be Stupid, Worship the Lord with Glad Praise. And uh, when I shared that title with the staff this last week, they were going to print it in the bulletin, they said, wow, you're coming back with a bang. And... uh, Maybe the title is a little bit provocative, uh, but I hope to show you this morning that it does in fact come from the text. So you'll notice that the title of the psalm is a psalm, a song for the Sabbath. Now as many of you know, the Lord commanded His people, the Jews, to gather together on Saturday or the Sabbath to rest and to worship Him. And, of course, with the resurrection of Jesus Christ, there was a transition that took place. Jesus was resurrected on Sunday morning, and so traditionally, Christians have gathered together on Sunday morning to celebrate His resurrection and to worship. Well, in our society, fewer and fewer people are honoring this ancient tradition, A Gallup article from last year, uh, dated March 29, 2021, reported, quote, "'Americans' membership in houses of worship continued to decline last year, dropping below 50% for the first time in Gallup's eight-decade trend. In 2020, 47% of Americans said they belonged to a church, synagogue, or mosque, down from 50% in 2018.'" and 70% in 1999. So, of course, in this survey they included synagogues and mosques as well, but it's a very good description, I think, of what's happening in the Christian church as well. There has been a significant decline in both church attendance and in church membership over the last 20 years or so. If this survey is correct, about a 20% decline. But as we'll see in our psalm this morning, our psalm challenges this trend. In fact, our psalm declares that it is stupid not to go to church, but it is wise and life giving to regularly and gladly praise the Lord in gathered worship with God's people. So I wonder what are your thoughts? What is your attitude toward Christian worship? Do you think it's old-fashioned and outdated, or vital and relevant? Do you think it's optional or necessary? Do you think it's boring or life-giving? Do you think it's a duty or a delight? What does God have to say about our attitude and commitment to worship Him with His people? Well, this morning we're going to turn to Psalm 92, and we will consider what the Lord has to say about these things. We're going to look at the Psalm in three parts. First of all, we will consider glad praise for God's works. Glad praise for God's works in verses 1 through 5. Secondly, we will consider stupid men and eternal destruction in verses 6 through 9. And then third, we will consider wise men perpetual life, and glad praise in verses 10 through 15. So first of all, glad praise for God's works. Look there in verses 1 through 5, and we read these words. It is good to give thanks to the Lord, to sing praises to Your name, O Most High, to declare Your steadfast love in the morning and Your faithfulness by night, to the music of the lute and the harp, to the melody of the lyre. For You, O Lord, have made me glad by Your work, At the works of Your hands I sing for joy. How great are Your works, O Lord! Your thoughts are very deep. So as we noted before, this is a song for the Sabbath. And so this would have been a psalm that would have been recited. It would have been sung on the Sabbath day as the people of God gathered together to worship Him. And notice the psalmist begins in verse 1 by declaring, It is good to give thanks to the Lord. And how are we to give thanks to the Lord? Well, you notice that there's a particular emphasis here in the opening verses of this psalm. There's a particular emphasis on music and singing. So if you see there in verses 2 and 3, we see when we gather, we properly give thanks to the Lord and we praise His name when we sing for joy. So we are to sing to the Lord. This is one of the ways that we are to properly praise His name. And notice that it's singing with musical instrumentation, with musical accompaniment, with the lute and the harp and the lyre. I'll be honest with you, I don't know what all of those instruments are, but I imagine as talented as John Ross is, he can probably play all of them. Um, And we can be thankful, can't we, for our music team here at Crawford Avenue, they can play the drums and the djembe and the guitar and the bass and the saxophone and the organ and the piano and other instruments as well. And I want you to know that our decision to use these instruments as we gather together to worship, our decision to create a context in which we can sing corporately together and hear one another sing and hear one another's voices, that we make these decisions not because, not just because it's a personal uh preference of ours, not just because it's a cultural tradition, not just to entertain you or to entertain me, but rather we do these things because God has commanded it of us in Scripture. God has told us that this is how we can properly praise Him through playing instruments and through singing songs of joy and praise to Him. And He has called us to play, and He has called us to sing for His glory and for our good. Notice the psalmist goes on to tell us what it is that moves Him and inspires Him to sing, what it is that should move us and inspire us to sing. Look there in verses 4 and 5. For You, O Lord, have made me glad by Your work. At the works of Your hands I sing for joy. How great are Your works, O Lord! Your thoughts are very deep. So here we see that we are to play, we are to sing, we are to praise the Lord because of the works of God. This is why the psalmist sings. This is why he sings for joy. And what are the works of God? When the Bible speaks of the works of God, it seems to primarily have in mind God's work of creation and God's work of redemption. Redemption. In the Old Testament we know that God's greatest work of redemption was the Exodus where God delivered his people from Egyptian bondage and slavery. And in the New Testament of course God create, God accomplished his greatest work of redemption through his son Jesus Christ. Jesus died on the cross for our sins. What that means is that Jesus came to this earth, He lived a perfect, sinless life, and He went to the cross. And at the cross, He bore in His body all the judgment, all the condemnation that we deserve for our sins, so that through faith in Him, we could be forgiven. And then Jesus was raised from the dead. And when Jesus was raised from the dead, it was as though the Father was declaring that the sacrifice of Jesus was fully accepted. It was final. It was perfect. It was as though the Father was putting His stamp of approval on the sacrifice of Jesus and saying, yes, this is the ultimate sacrifice. This accomplishes fully and completely the redemption of my people. And we gather together on Sunday morning to worship To praise the Lord for His great work of redemption in Jesus Christ. In fact, we know from the book of Revelation that in heaven we will forever sing of God's great work of redemption. In Revelation chapter 5 verses 9 and 10, we are told there of the song that is sung in heaven to the Lamb, to the Lord Jesus Christ, for His work of redemption. We read, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation and you have made them a kingdom and a priest to our God and they shall reign on the earth. And so my friends, we gather together on the Lord's day to celebrate His works to celebrate His work of creation, to celebrate His work of redemption, and in particular, to celebrate His work of redemption through His Son, Jesus Christ. And therefore, what we see in this psalm is that our our gathered worship on Sunday morning should be infused with joy. It should be joyful praise because of the great works of God. In fact, the psalmist tells us that this is one of the reasons why gathered worship is good. He says there in verse 1 that it is good, and it is good because he tells us in verse 4, it makes us glad, and God wants us to be glad in Him. So our gathered worship should be marked by joy. Now some might wonder, but shouldn't our worship of God be marked by reverence? Shouldn't it be marked by awe? Shouldn't that be the emphasis that we should give when we speak about worshiping God? And in one sense, yes. Our gathered worship should be marked by reverence and awe. In Hebrews chapter 12, verses 28 and 29, we read, Let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. But our worship of God should also be marched with joyful and glad praise. Because we read here in Psalm 92.4, At the work of your hands, I sing for joy. So which is it? Is it reverence or is it joy? And of course the answer is, it's both. In Christian worship, reverence and joy are... Awe and gladness are united together in perfect harmony. As the psalmist says in Psalm 2, verse 11, rejoice with trembling. And that's what we come to do as we come to worship the Lord. We rejoice with awe and with reverence. Because our enjoyment of God is not flippant or cheap or superficial. But it's an earnest and deep and grounded joy rooted in the truth of God's Word and in His Gospel. So as we consider the glad praise for God's work, let me just say a word this morning to our young people and to our college students. Part of the reason for the decline in church membership in our country and church attendance in our country is no doubt because a generational shift is taking place. So that younger folks are not attending church as consistently and faithfully as their parents did or as their grandparents did. And so young people, college students, let me just say a couple of things. First, I commend you for being here this morning. Praise God. Many folks your age are not in a church this morning. I commend you for being here this morning. The other thing I would encourage you with this morning is to determine to prioritize Sunday worship in your life. I know some of you have probably already done that. I'm sure you have. I know there are some who probably have not yet done that. And no doubt, it will be easier on Sunday mornings to stay in bed. And yes, many of your friends will take advantage of Sunday mornings to do homework, to get chores done, to do grocery shopping. And yes, it will be tempting to constantly be on the go on the weekends, to travel to the beach or the mountains or the lake or the ball game, or this wedding, or that wedding, or this event, or that event, so that your church attendance becomes shoddy at best. But let me just say this. If that's the life you choose, you will miss out. God has designed gathered worship for your good and for your gladness. And my friends, do not trade the temporary joy of a lazy Sunday morning for the real, deep, lasting joy that is the fruit of faithfully worshiping with God's people month after month, year after year, decade after decade. If you commit to faithfully attending the gathered worship of God's people, you will come to know it as good, and it will make you glad. God has designed worship. He has called you to worship for His glory and for your good. So first of all, we see in our text the glad praise for God's works. Secondly, let's consider this. Stupid men and eternal destruction. Stupid men and eternal destruction. Look there in verses 6 through 9. The stupid men cannot know. The fool cannot understand. That though the wicked sprout like grass and all evildoers flourish, they are doomed to destruction forever. But you, O Lord, are on high. For behold, your enemies, O Lord, for behold, your enemies shall perish. All evildoers shall be scattered. So in verse 6, the stupid man or the fool is the unbeliever. And let me be clear, okay? The claim here is not that the unbeliever is unintelligent. In fact, we acknowledge that there are many, many intelligent unbelievers. They could be College professors, doctors, lawyers, CEOs of companies, businessmen or businesswomen. They may be very intelligent. Of course, there are many, many unbelievers who are far more intelligent than I am. Rather, the claim is that it is morally foolish, it is spiritually stupid to deny the existence of God, to fail to worship Him and to acknowledge Him as God. To assume that the wicked can live irrespective of God. That they can break His commandments without regret and then get away with it. The psalmist says that is morally and spiritually foolish. As one author has said, the psalmist's words here have nothing to do with mental capacity, only the use of it. What the psalmist says here in Psalm 92 actually reminds us of Psalm 14. Psalm 14 verse 1 begins this way, The fool says in his heart, there is no God. And in fact, in the English translation, they insert there is to make for a smoother reading, but in the original Hebrew, the verse reads, the fool says in his heart, no God. In other words, it's a bold, arrogant, undeniable rejection of God. And so in Psalm 14, what we have is what we might call a theoretical atheist, one who consciously holds to the theory or the idea that God does not exist. In Psalm 92, it seems maybe what we have here is more like a practical atheist. So so this is not someone who would necessarily say, consciously, I am an atheist. If you were to ask them, do you believe that God exists, they might say, yes, of course. But they live, they act, they behave as though God does not exist. And so they live under the foolish assumption that they can sin against God with complete immunity. That they will not be held to account. That they will never answer for living as though God does not exist. And so notice what it is that the foolish man, the stupid man cannot understand. Look at verse 6. The stupid man cannot know. The fool cannot understand this. This is what they don't understand, that though the wicked sprout like grass and evildoers flourish, they are doomed to destruction forever. This is what they can't understand. So they see the wicked prospering and they think to themselves, wow. They get to have all the fun. They're popular and they're good looking and they're rich and everything seems to go their way. And they, they live life and, and, and they do whatever they want to and it seems they face no consequences. They know all the pleasures of sin and none of its bitterness. Wow, that's the life. And as a result, the stupid man, the foolish man, joins the wicked in their sin. And we're all tempted to think this way. In fact, there's another psalm that parallels Psalm 92. It's Psalm 73. And in Psalm 73, Asaph writes Psalm 73 And Asaph is wrestling with this temptation in Psalm 73. In Psalm 73 verse 3, Asaph says, For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. So Asaph is seeing the wicked and it seems like everything goes their way. Maybe everything they touch turns to gold. And he says, when I witnessed their lives and I observed what was taking place in their lives, I was envious of them. In fact, there is a linguistic parallel between Psalm 92 and Psalm 73, because here in Psalm 92, the psalmist says, it's the stupid man, it's the fool who cannot understand these things. And that word stupid there can actually be translated brutish, it's like an animal. And in Psalm 73, Asaph says, as I was wrestling with these things, I was, Psalm 73, verse 22, I was brutish. I was stupid and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you, O Lord. And this is a dangerous place for a Christian to be. Asaph says as much in Psalm 73, he says, but as for me, my feet had almost stumbled my steps had all had nearly slipped for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Asaph says, I was just about to go down. When it seemed like everything was going their way and they didn't have a care for God. And do you know how Asaph was delivered from his foolish stupor in Psalm 73? Gathered worship. Or we could say it this way. He went to church. In Psalm 73, verses 16 and 17, this is what Asaph says. But when I thought how to understand this, I'm trying to figure this out. It doesn't seem fair. It doesn't seem right. It seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God and then I discerned their end. In other words, I went to church and I was rem- reminded that although the wicked may seem to prosper now, their end will be doom and destruction. Do you see that's the same thing that's happening in Psalm 92? This is a song for the Sabbath. And notice the great truth that delivers the psalmist here, that delivers the stupid and the foolish man from the idea that the wicked can sin with immunity, that the wicked can sin without consequence. Look there in verse 6. The stupid man cannot know, the fool cannot understand. This is what they can't understand. That though the wicked sprout like grass and evildoers flourish, they are doomed to destruction. And notice verse 8. Here's the truth that's at the center of Christian worship. But you, O Lord, are on high forever. When we gather together for worship, this is the truth that we gather around. This is the truth that is at the heart of Christian worship. That God is on high. That God reigns. That God is sovereign. That God is good. That God is just. And when we consider that truth, when we sing it, when we read it, When we hear it declared, it gives our life perspective again. We are reminded, I am not a fool to believe and trust in God. I am not a fool to walk in obedience. God reigns. And He will make all things right. And He will honor my faithfulness and my obedience. This is why Christian worship is so crucial This is why it is so important that we consistently go to church on Sundays to be reminded that our faith and our obedience is not in vain. Some of us this morning might be tempted to think that our greedy, immoral uncle or our greedy, immoral co-worker, oh man... They've got it made. Life would be so much easier, so much more satisfying, so much more fulfilling if I just joined in with them. And then we come to church and we are reminded it's all a lie. It's all smoke and mirrors. The enemies of the Lord, as we read in Psalm 92, they will perish they will be scattered and doomed to destruction forever but those who trust in the Lord and walk in his ways will live and so one of the purposes of Christian worship is to save us and deliver us from our moral and spiritual stupidity prone to wander we sing it don't we Prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart. Take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. God uses Christian worship to keep us. To keep us believing. To keep us trusting. To keep us faithful to Him and to His Word. I remember some time ago hearing an interview with John Piper. Someone was interviewing John Piper. He's a Christian pastor and preacher. And Piper said in the interview, I think I am still married today because of corporate worship. Corporate just means gathered. People gather together corporately to worship God. He says, I believe I am still married today Because of corporate worship. And the interviewer was kind of surprised. He said, What do you mean by that? And he said, Well, Noel, that's his wife, Noel and I went through some very difficult seasons at various times in our marriage. We were not communicating, we were hurting each other with our words, we were feeling hopeless. And he says, Under those miserable conditions, I would go to church. And I was supposed to preach. And I would begin to sing these songs that would remind me of God's truth and His power and His grace and His mercy and His goodness. And He says, in those moments, singing the truths of who God is, I would be melted and filled with hope. And so I'd preach. And then I'd go home and I'd persevere. And I'd keep going. And then he concluded by saying, and now Noel and I are actually pretty happy. Things are much better these days. We're very happy. God uses the gathered worship of His people in our lives to keep us and to save us from our spiritual and moral stupidity. Third and finally... Wise men, perpetual life, and glad praise. Wise men, perpetual life, and glad praise. Look there in verses 10 through 15. But you have exalted my horn like that of the wild ox. You have poured over me fresh oil. My eyes have seen the downfall of my enemies. My ears have heard the doom of my evil assailants. The righteous flourish like the palm tree and grow like a cedar in Lebanon. They are planted in the house of the Lord. They flourish in the courts of our God. They still bear fruit in old age. They are ever full of sap and green to declare that the Lord is upright. He is my rock and there is no unrighteousness in Him. So in these verses we see that to combat this lie that one can live as though God does not exist this this lie that one can flagrantly sin without consequence, this lie that the wicked are favored and that the righteous are forgotten. In order to combat this lie, the psalmist offers here a personal testimony and a general truth. Notice the personal testimony. It starts in verse 10. He says, but you, speaking to the Lord, but you have exalted my horn like that of a wild ox. Now, we know that a horn in the Bible was a symbol of strength. So you could imagine an ox raising his head after he's delivered a victorious blow or won a battle. And so the psalmist here is saying that the Lord has strengthened him. And then he goes on in verse 10 to say, you have poured over me fresh oil. In the Bible, of course, oil can be a sign of celebration Oil can also be used to dress wounds. It could also be a symbol in the Scriptures of setting one aside for a special task or office. But here it seems that this this reference to oil is a sign of favor. It's a sign of blessing. Like in Psalm 23, verse 5, where the psalmist says, "'You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows.'" And so the Lord has strengthened him. The Lord has shown in favor and blessing. And notice that the Lord has strengthened him and shown in favor and blessing, in particular as it relates to his enemies. So in verse 11 he says, My eyes have seen the downfall of my enemies. My ears have heard the doom of my evil assailants. Now I believe that we should assume that the enemies of the psalmist here that are spoken of in verse 11 are the same enemies that are spoken of in verses six through nine. So in verses six through nine that we just considered a few moments ago, there we read of the evildoers, the enemies of the Lord. Here in verse 11, we read of the enemies of the psalmist. And the enemies of the Lord are the same as the enemies of the psalmist. The enemies of the Lord often become the enemies of God's people. And that's what I believe we see here in Psalm 92. First, the enemies of the Lord reject God and they reject His Word and they live irrespective of Him. And then soon, as a result, they increasingly find the Lord's people to be a nuisance, an irritation, even a danger. As a result, they may ridicule them. They may attack them, persecute them. They may imprison them or even kill them. But notice that the psalmist bears witness here that the enemies of God who have set themselves against God, although they seem to flourish for a while, they had set themselves against Him, but just in time, in a matter of time, His eyes had seen their downfall and His ears had heard of their doom. They had set themselves against God. They had set themselves against God's people, and now the psalmist says they're not doing so well. In the the end, the Lord protected and honored His servant. So this is the testimony that the psalmist gives. But notice that God's faithfulness to the psalmist is not unique to Him. Rather, he says, this is a general or universal truth that applies to all of God's people. So, the psalmist has already told us back in verses 6 through 9 that the wicked are doomed, that they will perish, that they will be scattered. But notice the outcome of the righteous in verses 12 through 15. In verses 12 through 15, the psalmist uses the image of a tree to describe the outcome of the righteous. And he says that the righteous will flourish, they will grow, they are planted and will bear fruit. They're full of sap and they are green. So you see in verse 7, if you look there in verse 7, that the wicked are like grass. They sprout and then they wither away. But the righteous, in verses 12 through 15, they are like palm trees that bear lush fruit. They are like the cedars in Lebanon that stand solid and strong. And why? Why is it that the righteous are able to bear lush fruit? Why is it that they are able to stand strong like the cedars in Lebanon? Look there in verse 13. They are planted in the house of the Lord, that is the temple. They flourish in the courts of God. That's another reference to the temple. In other words, on the Sabbath, this is a song for the Sabbath, on the Sabbath they are gathered together with God's people, singing praises to God and worshiping the Lord in His presence. That's why they're able to continue to bear fruit. That's why they're able to stand strong like the cedars of Lebanon. In a, con- in a modern context, we would say they are planted among God's people and gathered worship. And they flourish with God's people as they sing God's praises, as they sit under the preaching of God's word, as they live in community with the people of faith. And notice the psalmist goes on to say that in such a context, living in such a context, praising the Lord and hearing the words of God, even in their old age, when their bodies are failing, verse 14, they still bear fruit in old age, and they are ever full of sap and green. Let me just say that this is actually one of the joys of being a member of a local church body. We get to witness this. So I was studying this passage, I just began to think of some of those saints who were among us in the last several years, who have gone to be with the Lord. Think about Herbert Hodges. Many of y'all remember Herbert. Think about Ron Cox. So friendly and welcomed us on Sunday mornings. Think about Marty Smallwood, who passed away actually when I was on sabbatical. Many of y'all knew Marty as well. Each one of these folks, we witnessed personally as their bodies were giving way, right? But as the Apostle Paul declares, even though our bodies are wasting away, our spirits are being renewed day by day. And by by God's grace, we witnessed that in their lives. And there are others as well. We witnessed their their bodies slowly giving away. But their faith and their trust in the Lord remaining strong and steadfast. And one of the reasons why was because they were among us, right? Sunday after Sunday, singing the praises of God, hearing the word of God preached. And God used that to sustain them so that even in old age, they bore fruit. And they were full of sap and green. I've spoken to the young people and college students this morning, but now let me just say a word to all of us, especially to those who might be feeling their age. This can be you. Your latter years can be your most fruitful years. You know what happens? Some people as they get older and they start to feel the effects on their body, They get more focused, right? They realize time is short. And they devote themselves to giving themselves to the Lord and to His work. When I was on sabbatical, I read, uh, one of the things I read was the memoirs of John Newton. It's kind of like his autobiography. And Newton was a slave trader in the African slave trade before he became a Christian And he was deeply immoral. His conscience in many ways had been seared. He was a very cruel man. And the Lord in His grace and mercy saved him, radically transformed his life. So that eventually he became a Christian pastor, an author, and a hymn writer. It's John Newton who wrote the famous hymn, Amazing Grace. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound, that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. And when John Newton turned 80 years old, some of the people around him became concerned that if he was to continue in his preaching ministry, it might just be too much for him. And so they brought this concern to Newton. And they were asking Newton whether he should continue in his preaching. And Newton replied, quote, I cannot stop. What? Shall the old African blasphemer stop while he can speak? End of quote. Do you see, for Newton at 80 years old, it was unimaginable for him that he would stop speaking of the Lord's greatness and the Lord's kindness and the Lord's goodness and the Lord's grace. Even in old age, he bore fruit. And he was green and full of sap. Oh, my friends, our latter years can be our most fruitful. But understand this, one of the keys for that to happen, one of the keys for that to happen in your life and in my life is that we plant our lives among God's people and we order our lives around the humble, authentic, word-centered, joyful worship of God. Because this is the means that God uses to sustain us to keep us, to bear fruit in our lives so that while our bodies are wasting away, we are still spiritually vital and alive. Notice, though, how the psalm ends. Look there in verse 15. Why is it that God exalts the righteous? Why is it that God anoints their heads with favor? Why is it that He causes them to flourish and to grow and to bear fruit? Look there in verse 15. In order that, to declare that the Lord is upright, He is my rock, and there is no unrighteousness in Him. So you see that the psalm begins with praise and the psalm ends with praise. The Lord keeps the righteous and He causes them to bear fruit and He keeps them green and alive so that they might declare the praises of God. So notice this. So you think about the psalm as a whole. God sustains us and He keeps us so that we might declare His praise. And how is it that He sustains us and He keeps us? by us faithfully gathering with His people and declaring His praise. So, the joyful declaration of His praise is both the means by which He keeps us, as we declare His praise, He keeps us, He's sustaining us, He's he's preserving us. It's the means by which He keeps us and it's the goal for which He keeps us. As He keeps us, as we're doing that, the goal is, the ultimate end is, we declare His praise. So why should we prioritize Christian worship? We should commit to attending church and worshiping the Lord with a humble and sincere and joyful heart because our spiritual lives depend on it. And this is the very reason for which we have been created, to declare His praise. As we close, look at verses 1 through 4 again. It is good to give thanks to the Lord, to sing praises to Your name, O Most High, to declare Your steadfast love in the morning and Your faithfulness by night, to the music of the lute and the harp, to the melody of the lyre. For You, O Lord, have made me glad by Your work. At the work of Your hands, I sing for joy. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank You and praise You that You have called us to be Your people by grace. And Lord, You have called us to sing Your praises for Your glory and for our joy and gladness. Lord, we pray that we would not be deceived by sin. But Lord, that as we come before You in worship, we would be reminded again and again that You reign and that we would give You praise and that You would cause us to grow and to be spiritually alive for Your glory. Take Your Word now and apply it to our hearts, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.